0: Welcome to the Talk of the T-Town podcast, where we discuss all things track cycling. Broadcasting from the Valley Preferred Cycling Center, I'm your host and Executive Director, Joan Hanscom, along with my co-host, Athletic Director, Andy Lakatosh. Welcome to the Talk of the T-Town podcast. I'm your host, Joan Hanscom, Executive Director here at the Valley Preferred Cycling Center, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andy Lakatosh, Athletic Director. And this week, we are chatting with VPCC, T-Town alum, three-time Olympian how many time Madison Cup champion Bobby Lee, hometown talent. Uh, we are super excited to catch up with Bobby. Bobby's on our board of directors. Uh, there's probably not a guest on this pod who's been more a part of the T-Town fabric for a very long time than Bobby. So we are excited to have him on. And personally, I think it's probably a little overdue. We're late getting to you, Bobby, but i um, <laughs> thrilled you're here and can't wait to hear what you're up to. Welcome.
1: Thank you, and thank you for having me. And fun fact about me and my participation at T-Town, I think I probably pedaled my first laps around the track sometime around 1988, 1989. Dang. And with the exception of the 2017 season, uh, have towed the starting line in a bike race every single year since then.
0: And how many seasons has your mom raced at T-Town?
1: Every single one. Yeah,
2: it was so cool. She. They even came we, out means, last year. That means
1: we're. That means we're approaching. 40 uh, forty-ish.
0: Yeah. We're like, in the,
1: well, we're not too far away from the fiftieth, right? This is
0: our forty-sixth season, so this will be forty-six.
1: Yeah, this will be the year number forty-six that she's raced a bike there.
0: I I just think that's so cool. Like it's just so cool that we have somebody still racing here who has raced from the beginning. I'm sure there are others, um, but obviously your mom is, is notable. Uh, so that's super rad. And, and we'll have to get your numbers up there at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so we are excited to have you. And, and uh, I don't know where you want to jump in. You've done some interesting stuff since retiring from the track. Um, you have delved into mountain bike racing you were a test editor at Bicycling Magazine. You are now on to new career paths. Where do you want to jump in? What's 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 on your mind, Bobby?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the every the life after racing is always an interesting thing, and uh, there's your perception of what you're going to do while you're still racing, and you're looking at the end, and then the end actually comes, and you're dealing with trying to figure out where to go and uh, you learn that your ideas of what you wanted to do don't always work out uh, and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult than you think it was and, and I remember a conversation with a friend of mine that I had about a year before I retired and I kind of had it all figured out uh, and he was about 10 years post retirement from his own athletic career and he kind of laughed and he said well, you know, let me in on that secret because I'm still working on it And uh, lo and behold, now I kind of understand where that sentiment comes from because I'm almost five years post-retirement, work in a few different jobs, and I definitely haven't figured it out yet. But to start back at the beginning, uh, I, Jesus, what the hell did I do? Um, I spent a long time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And at the risk of becoming stagnant, I decided just to make a move to do something because I had to make some sort of progress. So I signed up for some real estate classes and I got my real estate license. Um, And then a few months after that, I got my license for property and casualty insurance. And so I was just trying to do things because I got tired of waiting for the perfect job to roll across the table. Uh, Because as it turns out, it's hard to get a job when you're in your early thirties and you've got the work experience of a high school kid uh but the salary requirements of an adult never mind the fact that i went to school for business but when i was in college they only even barely had online classes like we actually did proper correspondence classes so there was just such a gap between what was happening in the business world and what i actually did in college so i just i was doing stuff to do stuff Uh, and then a super opportunity came along with bicycling magazine to join that crew as a test editor uh, and that really Kind of got me off to the races and into my first real post-cycling career uh, and that was wonderful we were i was working with bicycling magazine then popular mechanics and also runner's world and getting a feel for the broader landscape of cycling not just as a sport but as a lifestyle and as a as a pastime and that really opened my eyes to everything that bikes can do and everything bikes can give, uh, because it's it's easy when you're caught up in the racing mindset to forget that bikes are these awesome toys and they're tools for mobility. They're also tools of the trade when you're racing. But there's just so many different things you can do with bikes, so many different ways you can enjoy it. Uh, that it showed me it helped me understand how the larger ecosystem of the bicycling world worked. But then part of learning about how that larger ecosystem worked was learning that I kind of had this inkling to jump into the PR world, because it felt like a more natural natural fit to what I'd been doing as an athlete, where from the better part of 10 or 12 years, I was essentially part of the marketing and PR machine of all of my sponsors. And so just recently, only about six weeks ago now, I joined a firm based in Colorado called Backbone Media. And now I'm often running in the PR world.
0: Which is very cool, by the way. There's some very rad <laughs> people that work at Backbone um, that I'm fortunate enough to have known from my past life in cycling as well. And so you've landed in a in a good spot. Like, that's a good crew.
1: Um, I'm I'm pretty stinking excited for it, and along with along with keeping their keeping their hand in the cycling industry, they've got a massive footprint in the rest of the outdoor world. And so I'm really excited to expand my own horizons and and work in a in a field that kind of that more accurately accurately represents like my greater lifestyle now, which isn't just bikes.
0: Right, right. I think I've you know because I wasn't a pro athlete, I'm just a a weekend warrior person. Uh, I never sort of lost that appreciation for for bikes as more than just a racing thing. Like I ride my bike, and I still feel like I did when I was four years old when I got my first bike, and i I rolled around the block for hours by myself and I did circus tricks standing on the top tube. like that whole piece of like what what joy like it can bring you just rolling around, having fun. It does like, I don't know. It doesn't always have to be training. it does it can just sometimes just be like an escape mechanism, which I. You know, when you're a little kid, right, that's what it is. It's freedom. It's like, ooh, I'm leaving mom right. and dad behind, and I'm going on the road, and it's freedom, and I get to do stuff. Um, I, I feel lucky that I never lost that particular slice of, of what bikes are. But I can see when you're a, when you're a professional and it, it's the tools of the trade, I can see where it would get you there pretty quick. Um,
1: yeah, and I, I came dangerously close to losing that completely after the beijing games and it took me about three or four months uh to remember that that bikes are toys again and that that definitely helped guide me through the rest of my career uh but even so in the run-up to the run-up to rio uh was just so stinking hard that even though i liked playing on bikes there just wasn't there wasn't time energy for it so to be able to pull back and Use bikes in a way that's 100% enjoyable every single time. I swing a leg over the top tube to now is really refreshing.
2: See, so I'll flip the complete other side of the coin on that one. I never saw bikes as an escape, ever. For me, the moment I started riding a bike and started riding a bike bike here was about competition. That turned into training, and so I never like I've a number of people been like, oh, it was like freedom. Bicycle was never freedom for me. It was always a type of a job or you know it it wasn't even really really it was pure sport it wasn't recreation so part of the reason that I've always wanted to step away from the sport as many times as I have is feeling true burnout from that and then there's always Mm -hmm. something that drags drags me back and it wasn't until I retired after 2014 and didn't ride for a number of years until I finally learned how to Ride just to ride and now I see it as recreation, but it still does not feel like freedom to me. so it's just it's, it's very interesting for you to say that that it's always been at the core because for me that was something I had to completely discover later later on. like I never understood that at all
0: yeah for me it was like oh look there's goats on the side of the road I'm going to stop and take pictures you know (laughs) like
2: oh we could never stop it was like you need to get the training ride done yeah yeah well I have those
0: rides too right like there's definitely times and place for that but man it's fun to to ride your bike and get ice cream or it's fun to ride your bike and and stop for pictures with the goats or the or the alpacas or whatever cute you know animal you see at the farm (laughs) like that's the that's the fun stuff now
1: yeah but and that's the interesting thing and also the it's the beauty and also the trap of being a competitive cyclist because you, you can go down that rabbit hole where you're just, you're so stinking focused on executing perfectly on that training plan, uh, that even minor diversions, uh, you can leave yourself no time for. Yeah. Highly
0: recommend you guys take the ice cream rise.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, so my, my big thing was always exploring finding new roads, um, and taking taking the pressure off just a little bit but for most of the year the training was so stinking regimented that there wasn't there wasn't the flexibility to find new roads and essentially to like to find bad roads because if you if you find roads that don't work it balls up your training program just as badly and so i always had to take about a month to six weeks at the end of the year and just ride with with no structure with no time goals just go out, do what felt right. And it often ended up being crazy amounts of volume just because I was having so much fun not knowing exactly what I was going to do, where the day was going to take me.
0: And now you're doing that with the baby buggy. Exactly. (laughs) Which, for for those who have not seen Bobby's social or his Strava feed, um, Bobby does a lot of miles while towing a continuously growing small person in the back, (laughs) It's got to be getting harder. He's getting bigger. Yeah.
1: He, he is. Uh, he's uh, My son's up to about 25 pounds now, and the trailer weighs about 35. So we've got a fair bit of weight back there. But discovering last spring that Cy can sit in the trailer for five or six, six hours at a shot and is just happy as a clam was probably the greatest thing for my family. And now it, it was a thing we started during the pandemic. There was no racing to do. Uh, There's nowhere to go, so we would just load up on weekends and go for long bike rides. uh, And being able to go out all day for the three of us was just amazing. Uh, And now he's bigger, he's walking, he's running, he's working on riding his own bike, but he still loves these long days in the trailer. So the rides I've been doing over the last year are now some of the best endurance training I've done since I was a full-timer.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say everybody on the Thursday night crit when it comes back, you better watch out because Bobby's not gonna have fifty-five pounds in tow. And he's gonna crush. He's gonna break hearts and crush souls with the with the light bike.
2: See now, now been, Bobby's been, just finally starting to understand what I felt like every time I rode when I was really overweight. I was like, yeah. Except whereas your load gets heavier, mine gets lighter the more. I ride, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Now we've been so we've been logging a lot of miles. Uh, kind of in that like. 13 to 15 mile an hour range, because I tell you what, there's a tipping point where the drag just becomes insane.
0: And you're doing this um, all on your mountain bike, right? So. On, the,
1: on the mountain bike. Yeah, it's, it started last year because I, um, I realized that I was actually really inefficient at riding the mountain bike. I'd spent so much time riding the bike on trails and riding a riding on the trails. It's really dynamic. You're in the saddle, you're out of the saddle. You are never really sitting planted that much for one at one time. And then all of a sudden, one day, I realized that I couldn't pedal hard in the saddle consistently very well at all. So I thought, well, geez, if I'm racing a lot of mountain bikes, I better figure out how to do this. And so I thought, well, you know, we'll just start riding it more on the road. And then we started doing the trailer rides. And between the trailer and the mountain bike, it kind of helped balance out the speed difference between Shelby and I. So bam, there we go. And um, now outside of bike testing for bicycling last year, Virtually all of my rides have been on the flat bar
0: So this means again, Bobby's towing 55 pounds behind him You should go do some mountain bike racing at altitude because it'll translate right? Like (laughs) It'll it'll still make you nice and light you can go do Breck Epic or or one of those Leadville type races again, and it'll just be like this is easy now, right? Yeah,
1: so Yeah. Leadville kind of comes back up into the conversation because uh, it's not too terribly far away from Carbondale where the backbone offices are. So uh, maybe there'll be a good excuse to do an office visit and a race at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's you know, it's it's for work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's for work. That's so cool. Um, And I'm excited because you're also on our board of directors. Which is, uh, I you know, I think it's great. We've got um, some some new voices at the table on our board of directors. Uh, you, uh, Michelle Lee and Cheryl Osborne, who were on the previous podcast. Um, I think you've been bringing a lot of energy to the board. Um, and so, just really quick for our for our listeners, you know, what do you hope to achieve by being a member of our board of directors? Like, why why did you allow us to coerce you to join the board? <laughs>
1: I say the first first thing was probably a, a feeling of of duty and responsibility. I've loved the track for decades, and it's given me so much. So the chance to actively engage and hopefully help in some way, shape, or form, uh, I, I couldn't pass down. But
2: that's, that's the that's the primary same reason I'm sitting here too. Right? Is I, I felt an obligation to be involved in giving back and continuing the legacy of it you know
1: yeah and it's it was always something i wanted well not specifically being on the board but giving back in some way is something i'd always wanted to do and felt strongly about but it's hard to sometimes it's hard to find the right way and sometimes just kind of sitting back and letting that way develop organically uh, is the best way and in this case this opportunity was perfect for me and one of the things i really didn't like about the board in the past especially when i was racing it was this kind of enigmatic body that existed somewhere off in the distance and they made these decisions no one knew who they were and that's just how it was and so for me joining the board felt like a chance to try and help change that and let the board be more public more integrated into the community and break down that perception that the board wasn't part of the community.
0: Yeah. And I think that that has been an incredibly valuable contribution. Um, I know I have appreciated your input and your feedback and your advice and your voice. Um, And now we're going to tie it all around Bobby last week offered to do something crazy on our behalf because um, we are in the middle of a fundraising campaign to try to expand what we do here at the track to become a true cycling center. Uh, we're doing a, a grant um, fundraising A thing uh, through OutRide and the Classy platform to try to raise some money to put in some some mountain bike infrastructure here as well. So last week, Bobby offered to say, "Well, if you need me to do something crazy to prompt like a matching giving thing, I'm I'm willing to do it." So you just did this for um, high school mountain bike racing. Talk a little bit about that crazy effort. Uh, And then we'll talk about what kind of crazy effort I can get you to do for us.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So just about a month ago, uh, back in the end of March, I rode a little over 100 miles of the most mind-numbingly boring single track (laughs) South Jersey has to offer uh, for the sake of raising money for Pickle, which is Pennsylvania's NICA affiliate league for interscholastic uh, cycling. And it benefits the middle school and high school age athletes around the state and That was specifically to raise money for their local dirt initiative, which aims to bring smaller, more sustainable races closer to more riders. Because, of course, our state's very big. Travel was prohibitive. And so this initiative aims to bring more races closer. And Pickle was able to put these races on for $500. So once we realized the races were that cheap, uh, it seemed like a no-brainer to do a great fundraiser and see if we couldn't fund two whole seasons of races. So that 103 miles of single track netted just over $12,000. So from that event alone, we're gonna fund 25 individual races for Pennsylvania's middle and high school aged athletes. And I've been thinking about a way to translate that success into something for the velodrome. And then all of a sudden this grant popped up to build the pump track. And so I thought, yes, that's it. That's something really tangible that we can do. So we got to figure something out now.
0: Yeah. Let's figure something out. We'll put, we'll put you on your bike. You'll get to do something insane again, but yeah. Yeah. I I
1: mean, Uh my first, my first idea was to, was to throw Guy Nelson under the bus (gasps) with his, with his high wheel hour record attempt. Um, I
0: I uh, like, I like where you're going with that because of course, you know, Guy is one of my favorite humans because talk about a person who has the joy of, of, of bikes right like there's I rode with Guy one day and we're going down this descent and the next thing I know he's sitting on his top tube going side saddle and then he switched to sit on the top tube on the other side going side saddle not pedaling like doing circus tricks like I did when I was a kid and I thought to myself like here's a guy who's probably one of the more talented people I know on bikes like really Guy is talented right like but he just has so much stoke for riding bikes like and just having fun Um, and as a person who I'm, I'm an introvert and I'm sort of serious most of the time, to see somebody like Gee on bikes just sort of gives me joy. And so I'm in favor of you looping Guy into this because <laughs> Guy brings joy.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, and we've been, we've been playing bikes together for the better part of 20 years now. Uh, and we were actually, we rode the Junior Worlds here when they were in T-Town okay. way back in 2001.
0: That's amazing.
1: That's- so we've got a long history of pedaling bikes together.
2: Uh, so my idea right, <laughs> Uh-oh. is is we uh, so, so we had the 24-hour record here on the track that was set by Chris Paradise years ago, right? And that gave me the idea of, like, well, one, we're going to make parody, right? So now we have all the same records for women that we have for men. But a couple of them sit un, undone at all. And one of them is I added in an hour record for men and women. So... I think you should do an hour record on the track, and people can pledge for every kilometer that you ride to match. That's
1: perfect. That, that, that's what he's trying to do on the high wheel, right? Exactly. Yeah, except
2: except ex, you would ex,
1: excellent. So I'm off the hook.
2: Oh, no, 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 no. You've got to you do gotta it. You got to do too. it on a regular bike, right? You have to do it on no. a regular bike. We're, we're not making an, an uh, high wheel hour record. We're not. We're not going to get that specific. I already looked at how many records we had on the track, and I'm like. Why do we have a flying kilo? Like this is completely irrelevant, but it's there. So
0: well, gee, if he does everybody. it though, we're going to put it on the books because nobody'll ever touch it. So <laughs> if if he makes the world record on the high wheel bike, it's definitely going on the on the T town records. Do so
1: is there is there? There's actually no current hour record on T town.
2: Nope. nope, no one ever did it. But I, I added it in, and it just says uh, to be set in there. And, and basically, I was waiting for one of two things: either a taker. Or I, I I was gonna personally pick a random. When I was really out of shape, I was like, "I'll just do it. It might only be like twenty k, but you know, well, to hell with it." I <laughs> said the same thing,
0: right? I said I wanted to do the old lady hour record on the track because there's nobody to beat, so I can do the yeah I can do the masters lady hour record on the track, and I can do like nothing just, and just, still get the record.
1: <laughs> just be well, the if, first. No, if nobody takes an official crack at it before Guy's high wheel attempt, he will have the only recorded time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, that's correct. But he he's got to break the world record. Like, yeah. Did you watch by any chance the GCN documentary about the guys who did it? Um, it's really no. But brilliant.
1: actually, about fifteen years ago, I was on a random training ride down in Tasmania, and stumbled across the high wheel world championships.
0: Oh, that's it was funny. A
1: criteri- it was a criterium.
0: He wanted to do. He wanted to host it across the street in the fitness park, uh, or at least yeah. the national championships. Mm. Like he, he definitely has thought about bringing the the high wheel bike criterium championships here to the fitness park. Can you imagine that downhill on high wheel bikes? Oh
1: yeah, well, th- this was this was about twenty twenty bikes careening around a downtown criterium course that was tight enough to make me think twice about it.
0: Yeah, he's insane. I but mm-hmm. I'm I'm in favor of it. I just you know. I'm in favor of his insanity. I, I I still like the best thing I've ever seen, I think, on the track here was when they had the three up sprint in the in their race last in 2019. And their heads were like bobbling back and forth because they were going so fast. But there's nowhere <laughs> to put that energy. So their heads were like little bobblehead <laughs> dolls. And it was coming out of turn four. It was the scariest thing I've ever seen because they were three across the track. And I was like, "Oh my God, somebody is going to just totally eat it on the, uh, coming out of turn four. It was so a long ter- way down
2: from the top of a high wheel, too.
0: Yeah, it was terrifying. Uh, <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God," the person who's top, like up up at the up at the far end of the track. I was like, "Oh my God, this is so scary." But yeah, they they did it, and, and it worked. Yeah, and it worked, and it was like the best thing I've ever seen. Um, so. So you can do your hour record attempt on at a real bike while Guy does his record attempt on the high wheel bike. And then Andy will do
2: none of the above, none of
0: the above. And I'll do the old lady record attempt.
1: Sure, surely there's someone around here who's far more relevant and not a borderline washed up dinosaur who can do a... Uh... Do an hour record attempt for
2: the guys No, see that's what makes it more fun like that's why i'm still racing how many of the elites can i beat or that can't beat me right <laughs> like, like you guys you guys need to up up your game i just did uh john john Croom's podcast and we were talking about that we were talking about you know why american sprinting isn't isn't to the next level and it's like you know there's just so much work like you gotta just do the work right and you got to go outside your comfort zone you got to push yourself and not make excuses and not look at usa cycling and not go you need to to do x y and z for me like you know when when truly third world countries can get into the top 12 and sprint qualifying and stuff and we're not qualifying for world cups i i i don't think there's some support issue there i think there's a a more cultural like let's let's get to work and that's you know if, if we can change change gears a little bit you know a lot of what you did within your within your personal career you did you know primarily from here and yep. you really had to do a lot of it completely on your own right because especially when you were fully flying the only person that was sane enough to actually go out and ride with you was jack Symes on the motor right like like there was there was no one else locally that was like okay here's a really great training partner that can keep up with bobby or or the volume right and uh you know what was what was some of that like because i i know personally when i think about my best years or accomplishments it's not the individual racing it's always what what went into it and i definitely know you had a lot of time to go into it to to really make the memory so I'm wondering if there's a particular year or workouts or something like that that really stand out to you when you think back to it oh man uh, or what oh, made man. the biggest difference right because we started so so I used to stand on the backstretch with Brian Abers and Andy Sparks and these guys and you know we'd watch you toy literally toy with the field at at elite <laughs> nationals just go off the front string the entire field out swing up go on yeah, board go all the way to the back of the field see an attack go away let him get a half lap up and then go yeah okay i'll i'll, I'll go shut that down now and take off and so what, what i used to be like this is when i was fully retired i'd stand back there and be like you know what i really if, if i could die and come back as anything i'm like i want to come back as bobby lee for one day and go race a friday night and just see what that's like to be able to look at <laughs> someone a half lap up and go yeah, I'm going to get there, go past them, take a the lap. Maybe I'll take another lap. Then I'll swing off. Oh, I'll let someone else have this sprint. I don't really need this one. <laughs> like that was always the, the, the aspiration. So anyway, yeah.
1: Yeah. That, that always presented, nationals especially, always presented really unique challenges because the hardest bike races to win are the ones where everyone's expecting you to win and when everyone's looking to beat you specifically. So I had to, it took a long time to figure it out and I got beaten in a lot of bike races uh, along the way trying to learn it. But that racing style that you're describing, watching from nationals was very, it may have looked haphazard and and like I was fucking around a lot, but it was really, really deliberate uh, to try and deflect attention away from myself. And it was always a really risky business because the problem with being such a marked rider is that everyone is looking at you. And if you're riding in position to engage in the race as a rider of that kind of profile, everyone looks at you. So then every single attack you've got to follow. Um, and so the, the risk I always had to play with those races is just sitting way in the back out of completely out of the race until the very last moment when I thought I could probably engage without just taking everyone with me. And usually that meant letting people do a lot of bike racing so they could get tired enough that they weren't going to chase me right away because I always needed just that little bit of hesitation for one or two guys to say, ah, shit, I'm a little bit tired. Someone else chase because otherwise, if I attacked, it was 23 guys. Queuing up, you yeah, right to chase me down,
2: right on you yeah. immediately, right? Like, like, <clears> like <throat> you've never seen. It was like, um, it was like a swarm of birds when you see them all turn and move at one. It was like Bobby went, and it was like poof, there goes the whole field right away. Well, yeah,
1: they- yeah. So then, like specifically letting letting groups get dangerously far away uh, was a very specific tactic because usually there was a lot of in race, a lot of racing that would go on to the point where a move would be halfway. Halfway up the track, the brake would be a little bit tired. They were done with their initial surge, so their pace was slowing down, making them easier to catch. But then also, all of the people that had been frantically trying to get across that gap, those and their initial burns were gone, and so, most that would be my one window of opportunity and kind of the secret into you know just snapping across what would seem like a really big gap really quickly.
2: No.
0: So clearly, this is a tactic that worked because Bobby. Represented the U.S. at three Olympic games. Uh, talk, but it, it doesn't work
1: at the big show. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but it was a tactic that worked to get
0: you there. Um, so talk about talk about that. Talk about what it meant for you to, to, to represent the country three times at the games and and what that experience was like. Because most of us will never know.
1: Yeah, it's it. You know, each each experience was very very unique. Beijing was was realizing the dream and it was such a monumental effort just to get there because it seemed like this this massive mountain to climb and sifting through all these different qualification procedures and frankly just was not wasn't really quite good enough to be there so I just got there by the skin of my teeth but holy shit I made it sometimes that's all that counts
2: well but that was back Uh, when they had that fun I say that with a lot of sarcasm stupid mass start time trial test right you had to do a flying 500 under such and such a speed and then what was it like continue two, yeah like 2k yeah so it was
1: it was a, a flying a flying 3k in standard bars but your opening 500 had to be stupid fast that would just defy all logic of pacing
2: and and this was how we selected selected teams interesting right. yeah
1: so that but, but that was an interesting one because we had we raced all winter through the qualification procedure and there was a few benchmarks that you could hit to punch your ticket directly to the games
2: through yeah, which is actual like, bike racing which is always like world podium right or like winning a world cup those those types of really big things
1: yeah and colby pierce was definitely the better bike racer at that time but he never quite hit that target so We got to the the equalizer. Then if no one hit the automatic qualification is they were going to bring us all out to LA uh, about two months before the games and make us do this damn time trial. And it was going to be winner goes. And, um, training for a three kilometer time trial, two months before you have to do a 40 K Madison doesn't really seem like a, like sound logic, but that's a different conversation. Uh, that's what it was. And so I decided to go all in on that 3K test. I said, fuck off, you know, the Madison, you can't race a Madison if you don't get there to race it. So I went for that, went all in on that 3K. Um, And I won the 3K, won the trials, and then had to figure out how to reboot and uh, get ready for Beijing. But um, as I looked at it back then, my goal was to make the Olympic team. And so and I made it. And I couldn't really, I couldn't allow myself to think about performance until I'd actually made the team. So Beijing came and went, amazing experience, learned a lot. And before I'd even touched down back in Newark, was already game planning for London. And London was cool um, in that I was good enough to actually race my bike there. Uh, Qualifying for London was still amazingly difficult. had to battle with patellar tendonitis a few times. I remember the last world cup before the London, before the final world cup of that season, 10 days before I couldn't even ride my bike. Yeah. And if I didn't, if I didn't get on the bike there and even just make it to the starting line, there was no chance of participation. So every, everything has its, you know, these battles that you fight on a small scale that are just part of, part of the adventure. Um, but then I had in my mind going into London that if I could nail a top 10, that would sufficiently answer my question or the question that I'd been trying to answer for myself, which was on my day, can I race with the best in the world? And I figured a top 10 at the games would do it. So I think I ended up 12th or 13th. But the problem was, well, not the problem. Yeah, the problem was in my last event at the Scratch Race, all of a sudden I got this idea that I could do more than just be there and be in the mix. And so whereas Rio hadn't been part of my conversation or my planning pre-London, all of a sudden came home from London thinking, all right, well, now we got to see about getting a medal in Rio. Because I think that can happen. And four more years, keep on cruising. Uh, It didn't happen in Rio. Uh, I ended up getting food poisoning the night before racing started, so never even really got a chance to, to try or to see. But in the process of getting there, I actually answered that question that, I thought my top ten back in London could answer for me, and that actually even takes another step back to Andy. What you had mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, which was learning how to love the process and all those little steps along the way, because the results are are so fleeting, and the like the disappointment and devastation from having not having the performance that I wanted in Rio was really hard to swallow, but. Uh I had to lean very hard on the satisfaction that despite there wasn't the fact that there wasn't the hardware to prove it externally, I still knew for myself that on my day, I could race with the best
0: Well, and you had had some really good results going into um into real right like you you had to have had that that affirmation going into it right you did some really great racing at the world cup level so you you had to be feeling that you know anyway right or at least i would hope you felt some of that going yeah. in
1: yeah yeah it was getting there but it's you know one or two results along the way doesn't doesn't sufficiently check that box because sure. you know, a world cup a world cup medal here you know yes they're hard to come by but there's always people that weren't in attendance so there's always qualifiers, right. uh, but when the medals start to pile up, you know, throw in a world's medal, uh, throw in some six-day racing, uh, throw in other performances along the way that maybe don't have the result to speak of, but you're there, you're a part of it. It's an overall feeling that you get, kind of in the aggregate of you know, several years of racing. So, yeah, it, it, I feel good about knowing that. I at least recognize my potential, even if the results weren't there.
0: Which is a very cool thing to say, you know, when you, when you look back, when you have the moment to sit back and reflect and say, yeah, I I optimized myself as as best as I could. I lived up to my potential. And that's a cool thing to say about a chapter of your career. Uh, It's one that you kind of hope you can say about the next chapters too, right? Like, yes, was I, Am I optimizing this chapter, even if it's not on the bike? It's you still, you know, you still want to optimize your chapter. You want to make sure that what you do is, you know, up to that standard as well, right? Like
1: So that well that's that's a that's an interesting question itself because then you have to first you have to determine what does optimizing mean? that optimizing from a sport performance standpoint meant everything was going 100% in one direction and there was no room for anything else in my life. Post-cycling, it's been just the opposite. There's all these things that I've been wanting to do and now I have time to do. So what, no one particular thing gets optimized in the way that cycling used to get optimized. but
0: Except maybe your life. It,
1: Right. So that, right. And that's where, that's where you try and create that balance. And it was something I struggled with, uh, as I was transitioning into, into a non-cycling career I had in my mind. And I think there was the stereotypes that exist out in the world that athletes, when they move on from their sport, automatically take that same drive and passion right into anything else that they're doing. And I just, I wasn't finding that at all. And at first, I was think I thought there was there was something wrong with me, uh, that I couldn't pull that same passion and drive in, uh, and it was a, it was a bad feeling for a while because you get so used to being I'm not going to say being your best because you're not your best every single day, but doing the best you can every single day while you're training, that it felt really weird. Not having the drive to do that, but that understanding that there's all these other things you can do in your life that sometimes a base hit is actually just okay, and that just that keeps things keeps things moving. Um, And there are a lot of things that I can do that don't require 100% commitment, which leaves emotional and physical energy open for other things in my life. And so, I it took it took a while to accept and feel comfortable with I won't call it coasting but you know for lack of a better term it wasn't going 100% every single day
0: Yeah I think that's 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 sort of optimizing balance though right so instead of optimizing performance you're you're optimizing uh, sort of balance in your life uh, it's not a high performance mindset right it's different but it's a balanced mindset and a high performance mindset is rarely a balanced mindset I would say
1: No it's correct very very imbalanced <laughs>
0: Um. So I think you know you're just op- what optimization means is is different now, um, which right. is cool. It's a uh, it, it's just a, a different chapter and and what optimization looks like when you're a dad, and a husband, and uh, a a coworker, and a guy who has stoke for bikes. It's just you're optimizing differently, but not less. Yeah, and
1: optimizing differently, and the weird thing or the harder thing to wrap my brain around in this new life is that 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 balance is is always shifting it was easy when you could optimize towards one single race because you knew right but the the priorities shift all the time and uh that took a took a long time to get comfortable with
2: i'd say for me it wasn't until 2020 thankfully right when i Uh, For me, COVID was a good in in a lot of ways, but being able to reshift priorities and put myself a little bit more first. And then what I came to realize was, hey, if I take care of my balance, and for me, the balance provides happiness, right? And not just letting Mm -hmm. myself say yes to everything and yes, I'll do this and yes, I'll do that. And sure, I'll take on that extra project that I really shouldn't have decided to take on and like just how healthy you feel when you have that balance. And so coming out of COVID, that's been my biggest takeaway is like, hey, protect that balance, right? Whatever it is, sometimes it's, and I mean, a lot of times it is like, like right now, shit needs to get done at the track, right? And that is where the priority is. Because and I've
0: told Al, Andy no balance.
2: For, three, <laughs> for four months, there is no balance. You get um, balanced
0: the other nine months of the year.
2: <laughs> but it's like, you know, there's, there's, um, you know there's, there's a tipping point with that too, right? There's a point where you have to go, okay, this, this can, that email can wait till tomorrow, right? We have the things that need to get done today. And that's, that's different because that high-performance mindset is like, no, it's all got to get in today. Right. It's all right. got to get done Done tomorrow, and it's it's healthy when you're able to to find. Cause man, working with elite athletes, we're a neurotic bunch, man. Holy cow, no, we're, we're terrible. <laughs> it's a it's a special special case. That's 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 for sure. Um, I did have a question though, right? Because I was thinking about this the other day, right? In 08, you, Sarah Hammer, I think Jenny Reed were part of the what then was. Infamous mass debacle, right? How dare you wear a mask off of a plane to walk out in Beijing worried about the air quality. Imagine now, and so not just for sake of the games, but also for sake of like how the games would have gone different. And then maybe you would have had a different experience coming away from it and how your life might have been different after that imagine if that was now right because you could walk off a. in fact if you don't walk off a plane wearing a mask you're probably going to catch more shit than if you do but well
0: actually you'll be escorted off the plane (laughs) Um,
2: you know but like man this would be a completely different different world now if that had to go back and repeat wouldn't it
1: I yeah I I look back on that and and kind of chuckle Uh, and actually last spring I very smugly uh, dug back into a storage container where I have all of my um, beijing memorabilia tucked away and i pulled out my mask and i cracked open a fresh carbon filter stuck that baby in there and
0: I'm using that mask <laughs>
1: yeah it's so fun. yeah we thank thank the usoc for spending all those all those years and millions of dollars developing those masks that um yeah we got crushed for uh, in the moment but
2: now now it's it's you know, standard operating procedure right 12 years later it's been amazing
0: well you're just uh, yeah you were just fashion forward That's,
2: uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so so i got i got a question that, that I like to ask people who have raced raced here a lot and especially you being a uh, a legacy person right if you've been racing here since pedaling laps here since 88 then you're coming up on like 33 years of riding here at the track what stands out as the most memorable or biggest accomplishment here here in T Town. For me, hands down, the rider of the year, right? Rider Year in twenty twelve was that still sits at the top of my resume for me. But I was wondering for you, who's literally won everything except maybe Kieran Cup, um, you know, still hold a track record or two, like what what stands out to you if you think back? Mm
1: it's nondescript but the, the level of crowds that we used to see when i first moved up to friday nights from a junior was just amazing i'd never performed in front of so many people in my life and that kind of energy definitely sticks with me performance side rider of the year is very cool and i grew up walking through that uh walking through the plaza and seeing the the sign board that i think hasn't been there in quite some years with a list of all the names that have won rider of the year and it was all the all the best riders in the history of the track were there and so the year that i finally won my own uh, i thought it was really cool to be able to add my name to that list and the same with madison cup uh, that was a huge one to win the first time but then Actually, one of the really special ones was winning it to, I guess, 2019
2: last, with Shane. Quote-unquote last year, as we call it, because 2020 didn't really exist, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually winning winning number six with Shane uh,
1: the last time it happened was also really special because that, that tied the record. I think Sean Wallace is the only other person with uh, with six Madison Cups. And I'm a, I'm a real nerd for history and legacy. Uh, with events and and places like that. And so it means a lot to stand alongside some of the best that have raced here before me.
0: So for our listeners, um, we let, we let Bobby take the Madison cup after the, uh, after the race was over a la Stanley cup style where, um, where, you know, the hockey players who win the Stanley cup get to take it on their yachts and they take it to pool parties and they, take it all over the place and it is you know celebrated what did you do with the madison cup when you had it other than take pictures with the baby
2: drink out of it i can i can answer that one for you (laughs) Uh, actually no that was that was exactly it so that madison
1: cup win was three weeks before my son was born so the first thing that first thing i did as soon as uh shelby would let me is plop him down in the crib and put the trophy right next to him to take a picture that was a good (laughs) picture by
0: the way yeah
1: so back you know back in the early days when i won my first one with jackie Symes. Uh, taking the cup home was standard practice, and then we drank a lot of beer out of it. <laughs> uh, but that's not uh, not the program anymore.
0: It was it was a good
1: picture. Uh, but if I can, yeah the one the one other performance thing that I really love from T town though is the ten mile record.
2: You guys were on that that night,
1: and that was that was another one that I grew up knowing about for ages because it was it was set in 1998. There was this. It, the story was probably had, had taken on a life of its own about what a crazy race it was and how fast the time was and no one ever came close to it. Uh, and then we got this perfect night and I think we knocked something like 40 seconds off of it. Uh, so I'm pretty stoked about that one. But now the gears that these kids are riding these days, it's it's not going to last nearly as long as the last <laughs> one did because they're going so damn fast, but I'm pretty stoked to at least have, be holding onto that one for a short period of time
2: well you know the the tactical um, season plan that that I make everything has a reason and purpose as you know with everything that I do you know coincidentally the ten mile the five and ten mile fall right before our UCI racing so anyone that comes early gets a gets a crack a crack at that so you know yeah, yeah we definitely want to see a fall i mean 2019 i forget the exact number but we rewrote yeah. three quarters of the track
1: yeah the track
2: was... records and a lot of that was just actually you know cuz for me it's important to preserve like the the what's the word the prestige of it right like to me a track record has to fall on a friday night of racing right it can't mm-hmm. fall on a track records cannot be attempted on a Sunday afternoon on a private track rental, right? Like that's part of the magic of it. You have to do it during racing in front of a crowd is, is how I feel it has to go and you know, that that's part of what makes it fun. And so I try to make sure that almost every record becomes available at least at least once a season so that people can get can get a crack out of it. And some years we'll hit them and, and other years we won't, but you know.
0: 19 there was a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. we we ripped well, through them.
1: I'm hoping that 1812 1812 uh, and change for the 10 mile stands around for a while
2: I think it's going to I mean you guys had what like a six man team pursuit on the front of that thing for the whole yeah the, the whole way and then you know it didn't it didn't come it didn't come easy right you still had no. uh, uh that was a
1: full gas full gas sprint at the end
2: was it was it Archibald I think that basically just sat on and, and hung, or who was it? it was one of the Kiwis
1: no, no uh
2: he tried to cherry pick it, it from was you.
1: Either either Trinidad or Barbados, I I forget.
2: Oh, uh, okay, yeah. He he definitely tried to cherry pick it from Bobby at the very end. Took the free ride. I mean, the field started out thirty riders big, and by the end was down to fifteen at tops because that was all that could hang on to the to to the train. And um, yeah, but I look
1: back at the at the speeds we were going on that, if it, it was insane. Yeah. I, I I distinctly remember every time I'd watched the watch my computer drop below 55k an hour i'd start to get antsy
2: (laughs) which is flying which is absolutely flying that's amazing yeah
0: but i do i do like the idea that that protecting the 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 prestige the prestige of the records right like i think that that was one of the things you know going back to the whole hour record discussion you know that you keep hearing like bradley wiggins talk about how he set the hour record and then it it fell again and People ask him if he gets mad that somebody broke his record, and he's like, "No, that's the value of the record, right? You want it to keep right. getting broken um, because otherwise it becomes irrelevant, um, and we don't want that right. to happen here." But yeah, we'll let you. We'll let you keep yours for a while longer, Bobby.
1: Yeah, no, it's not. You know, you're not. It's it's not a name that gets erased. It's part of. It's part of the story.
0: Right. Right.
1: You it's... know, so my that that ten miles is going to go down, but you know the, the my contribution was. You know,
2: you raise the bar after
1: the better part of 17 or 18 years yeah
2: and so you raise the bar a, a lot thing that
1: can be done yeah yeah
2: yeah no, cool. that was that was Ben and mine's flying lap tandem record too right that stood 12 14 years something like that like that's that's what makes it makes it fun and you know it'll be exciting to see how the records now that we're keeping better track of the records tra- better track of the track records um yeah. <laughs> so but, yeah very cool awesome well thanks for sharing that
0: so what else is going on, Bobby? Anything else that you... Uh, anything fun planned for the summer? Are we going to see you out here at the track? Are we... Uh, spectating yeah, I'll definitely perhaps? be. Or, or I'll
1: definitely be out of, the, out of the track from time to
0: time. Um, I think I Shane think mentioned have, he wanted you to come back,
2: so... He does. He wants me to do another Madison Cup. Got to get number seven. Got to break the record.
1: Yeah. But you know what? If... If the international fields come back, uh, then the Madison Cup isn't. That's not that's not my show anymore. So I'm I'm a firm believer in you know, stepping back from the stage. I've I've had my time there. Uh, there's a lot of new young talented riders that need to come up uh, and do their thing. And so, you know, part of part of the reason that I was coaxed back to the two Madison Cups that I did uh, between retirement and now is because there was like this kind of hump that we were trying to get through at the track and it seemed like it seemed like an appropriate place to come back and show support and be a part of moving the venue forward um but you know my that's it my my time there as a, as a Friday night person is mostly done it's time for the new guys to come through uh, it's time for the new cast of characters so With any sort of luck, uh, you'll have a wonderful field there, and there will be no need for an old dinosaur like me to come in total. I don't know, happily enjoy racing from the other side of the boards. However, Masters Nationals might be a different story.
0: Yeah, (laughs) uh, now we're talking.
1: Yeah, and he and I have been talking about reuniting the Madison team. Uh, I I I last rode with him 17 years ago at the Australian Madison
2: Championships.
0: Oh, I love that idea.
2: Well, let's go full send, Bobby, and let's take it back to 2001 and get a Team Pursuit team back on the track for Master's Nats then too. No, thank you. We can do. It. No, no <laughs> see, 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 we can do it like you and me and Friedman did for, for collegiate Nationals that one year. I'll just sit on, you guys do all the work and we'll, and we'll race it. Pass <laughs> All right, well,
0: well, as long as we're going to see out there, I think that's what matters. And then we'll get you yeah, on Saturdays I, with your mom.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm definitely looking forward to the return of the Thursday Crits and especially oh, yeah. post-race beers at the Velo Cafe.
0: Oh, uh, it's going to be even better this year, Bobby. Have you heard we've got uh, we'll have food as well. So it's going to be a sticky pig and sticky pig and beers after Thursday night racing. We just need to get Thursday night racing back and it should yeah. be a we should be happy. All the
1: things that I'm that I missed last year, the post-training crit beers at the Velo Cafe, was I think near top of that list.
0: Yeah, that that turned out to be a really lovely thing every Thursday, right? Like the racing was yeah. fun, even though I was having all my weird iliac artery things. It was still fun to go out and get your teeth kicked in and then go drink beers with your friends. Yep. Um, yeah. That, that was uh, and
1: al- almost without fail, somewhere right around like nine, 10 laps to go, I'd start kind of losing interest in the race and start really looking forward to hauling ass over to the the cafe and getting that first beer.
0: Yeah, it was a, that was a fun thing. And and now I think, you know, hopefully we get more folks to join us because we'll have food and we'll have great beers and hopefully make it a really nice social, social event for us all. We just need the racing to come back. I went and I did the Thursday night crit at Great Valley one, like the, the practice crit, right? Not the... Mm -hmm and it wasn't the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, without without the fun bit of socializing afterwards, it was just it was just another crit and that's not a knock on Great Valley. I'm thrilled that it's, you know, an option, but the social piece was really nice. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, and this time I'll be looking forward to loading Sai up in the trailer and you know, we'll have the whole family ride down for the crit and then little nugget can be running around the plaza while
0: yeah
1: we're busy rehydrating
0: yeah there you go well i think on that note andy you got anything else or should we let bobby go back to work because now he's a working man
2: that's it uh
1: yeah working stiff
0: (laughs) well thank you bobby we appreciate you joining us today it's been lovely to catch up and i know uh i know we're all looking forward to seeing each other face to face and playing bikes together so fingers crossed that this happens soon um this has been the talk of the t-town podcast uh, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you consume your podcast. Leave us a good review because that helps more people find us. And more people finding us means we can do more podcasts. So uh, thanks to our listeners. This has been the Talk of the Tea Town podcast with hosts Joan Hanscom and Andy Lackatosh. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode, brought to you by B. Braun Medical, Inc. Head on over to our website, thevelodrome.com, where you can check out the show notes and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.